Scripture, as we began last week, seeing, of course, the birth of Christ and the announcement to the shepherds. And, um, and I know I kind of wrecked your whole nativity scene thing last week. So if you don't know what that's about, it's online. Go, go listen to it. Today, though, we want to continue on looking at the birth uh, of Christ. And we're going to meet two very interesting characters today. I don't mean characters in a strange... Just two interesting individuals. The first one is Simeon, and the second one is Anna. And it's interesting that these two people come along and testify who Jesus is. Which, of course, the law tells us that by two or three witnesses, a, a thing is determined. And so both of these individuals, two people, testify of the fact that this child is the Messiah, the redemption or the consolation of Israel, and it is he who is going to redeem the people. And so we see this testified by two people. But before we get and begin to talk about Anna and Simeon, we, we, know, we see Jesus coming in, his parents bringing him into the temple, and we see this repeated phrase that this, all of these things were done according to the law. They were done to fulfill the law. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the significance of Jesus fulfilling the law. I think that's crucial. And so our first area that we see then in verse 21 through... 24, we see this repeated phrase that what was being done was to fulfill the law. Now, when we study scripture, and one of the things we do, not only here uh, on Sunday mornings at the church service, but also uh, during our, our Sunday school times, we, we try to give you little tips and, and ideas or helps as to how to understand scripture. How do you interpret scripture? After all, how many people say, well, that's just your interpretation? Well, one of the things we do when we interpret scripture is we look for repeated terms and phrases. And you might note that this idea of according to the law or according to the law of Moses or so that the law would be fulfilled. We see this uh, being written over and over again in this passage of text. So that should cause us to stop for a moment and say, what is being what's going on here? Why is it so important for Luke to inform us that Jesus fulfilled the law? That is, from the very beginning of his life, Jesus was dedicated to the, to the commands of God. So he was brought into the temple for a time of purification. First we see that he was circumcised on the eighth day. That was according to the law. That was um, required by all, all males on the eighth day to be circumcised. And then there was a period of time after that where there was a time of purification. So 40 days after his birth, um, his parents brought him into the temple, and this was a, a rite of purification for the family, because you might recall that blood defiles. If you go back to the law, that blood defiles and makes a person unclean. Well, in the giving of birth, there is blood. And so there was a time where they would come into the temple 40 days after the birth of a male child and bring him into the temple, and they would perform this ceremonial rite of purification. And all of this was to fulfill the law of Moses. At this point, we now know that Jesus is 40 days old. And, all, and so why is it necessary for Jesus to fulfill the law? How many know, we all talk about this, that Jesus lived a perfect life and was completely righteous? We all heard that? I hope we, we all agree with it, that Jesus lived a perfect life. And one of the significant 
um, implications of Jesus living a perfect life is that then he was a perfect sacrifice. He was a blameless and spotless sacrifice. That's good. We need to know that. I'm going to go a little different direction. All right? I'm not denying that. I'm affirming that. I'm just saying that's not all. So Jesus lived a perfect life without sin, perfectly righteous, that he might be the sinless Lamb of God who gave himself for our, to, to forgive us as a perfect substitute for our sins. We established that. But there's, there are other reasons then why Jesus had to live a perfect life, why Jesus had to completely fulfill the law. And we get our first clue of this actually in the, in the book of Matthew where Jesus is being baptized. And Jesus isn't being baptized for his own sin because he had none. But rather he says this is to fulfill all righteousness. Here's where I want us to go. Salvation. Salvation is more than the removal of sin. Now, normally when we talk about salvation, oftentimes we talk about, well, I, I, I've, been de- I've been cleansed from my sin, that the blood of Christ has cleansed me from my sin, and that's absolutely true. And by His death, the stain of sin has been removed, which would leave you sinless. But here's the thing, it would not leave you righteous. You would be without sin. You would be morally cleansed. But you would not be righteous. Well then, how do I obtain righteousness? Oh, well let me tell you. Jesus lived a righteous life. A perfectly righteous life. A life of perfect obedience to God. And He is righteous. And He earned righteousness for your sake. Let's go to uh, Philippians chapter 3. Oh, there we are. Look at that. I turn around and it's there. Philippians 3 verse 9. It says, And may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. How does Paul get righteous? Not from his own works. Because he's never fulfilled the law of God. He's never completely upheld God's righteous standard. And because he has failed to, bring, to live up to God's righteous standard, he has actually uh, earned himself a curse. And I may be found in him, I don't have a righteousness of my own derived from the law because I failed at the law. But rather, I have a righteousness through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God. If we are to be righteous, our righteousness must come from outside of ourselves. Our righteousness must come from God. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 1.30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You are in Christ who became to us righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. And then in Romans 5.19, there's a bunch of other passages, but I'll, I think these represent as well. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. We are made righteous through the obedience of Christ. That is, Jesus obeys the law perfectly, and on the cross, there's this double imputation. Let me just, imputation is just a fancy, fancy term for the bookkeeping term, so all of you 
accountants in here probably like the idea of imputation. It just means to credit to a, another account. That's all it is. It's to credit to one's account. So um, what happened on the cross? Our sin was imputed, credited to Christ. That is, he bore our sins. But here's the really cool thing. That's, that's the first part of the imputation. Here's the second part of imputation. His righteousness was imputed to you and me. Your sin removed and credited to his account. This is why Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So that we might be the righteousness of Christ. And so here's what's going on. Christ obeys the law perfectly. He becomes the sinless Lamb of God who perfectly takes your sin. Now you are morally pure, but here's the thing. He credits His righteousness to your account. So God looks at your books, if you will, and He sees an absence of sin and a deposit of righteousness. This is what Christ is doing. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He lived completely righteous. And then he transfers that righteousness to your account. And so we have God who truly is Yahweh Sidkenu. That is the Lord our righteousness. And Christ has become our righteousness. So here's the thing. Christ has died for our sins and he lived for our righteousness. People ask, why did Jesus have to live 30 years? Couldn't he have just come as a full-grown man and died for our sins? Because then your sins would have been forgiven. Or perhaps, maybe Christ as as a young infant could have died for our sins. He was sinless. All of that would be fine. That would be good. Here's the thing, though. He lived for your righteousness. He lived a perfectly complete life, uh, totally in adherence to God's law, completely righteous, inheriting the blessings of the righteous life, and then he transfers that righteousness to your account. Christ died for our sins. Christ lived for our righteousness. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. He earned the blessings associated with obedience. He did not do this for himself because he was already sinless and he already had heaven. He did it for us. His righteousness then is imputed to you. Heaven is secured and it's reserved in heaven for you. So, here's the thing. What does all of this have to do? This is just one of the most beautiful truths of Scripture. Your righteousness is secure in heaven. How many of you kind of messed up once or twice this week? (laughs) Did you cease being righteous? You didn't. Here's why. Because your righteousness is secure in heaven in Christ. This is why you don't go in and out of one reason. You don't go in and out of salvation. Well, I sinned. Now I'm not saved. Now I do a good thing. Now I am saved. Now I sin. Now I'm outside of God's will and I'm unsaved. And hopefully when I die, it's in a place where I haven't sinned and I'm in God. No, your your righteousness is secure because it's secured by Christ who is righteous. Man. What a great truth that is. And I know I shared the story a while back when we were in Ecuador, but it's applicable here again, so I'm going to repeat myself. Not the first time. So when we were in Ecuador and I'm talking to this gentleman and he has a Catholic background, and I, and I asked him, I said, so are you saved? 
Can you be certain of your salvation? And he said, no. I said, why not? And and as we talked, basically he ended up saying, well, when I sin, then I'm not saved. And when I do good, then I am saved. I'm going, what a terrible... I didn't say this to him, but I'm thinking to myself, what a horrible, horrible position to be in. Because even if I do something good, what if I do it in and out of a wrong motive? What if I go and, and help flood relief victims in Louisiana or fire victims in California and I send them a big check? Then I start to question, well, that made me feel good. I wonder if I did it because it made me feel good. Was that righteous or not? Your righteousness is secured in heaven because Christ is our righteousness. Oh, not only are you morally pure because your sins have been forgiven, but you are, you are righteous because Christ is righteous. And so here's the idea then. Christ fulfills the law completely. And I think this is one reason why the, the New Testament authors often re- go back and say he fulfilled the law, he fulfilled the law, and he fulfilled the law perfectly. So even in infancy, Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. Jesus died for our sin, but lived for our righteousness. And on the cross, our sin is imputed to Jesus, and his righteousness is imputed to us. Hallelujah. Amen. What a Savior. So, Jesus now, only 40 days old, is already fulfilling the law of God, already living a perfect life. And in all of this, when they're at the temple and they're going through and fulfilling the law of Moses, here comes this gentleman by the name of Simeon. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Simeon because he kind of comes on the scene real quickly and then he goes away. We don't know anything other than what's told to us in these few verses, but we do know a few things about Simeon. We do know that he is righteous and devout and he's looking for the consolation of Israel. Well, that's an interesting phrase. What is the consolation of Israel? Well, consolation just has to do with comfort. It's the comfort of the Messiah who would release Israel from her oppression. And so, Simeon is looking for the Messiah who is going to free people from their oppression. Now, here's a couple other things about Simeon that I think we should pause and take note of. First of all, you see how he lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, this idea of the Holy Spirit is being repeated over and over again. So again, we should probably stop and take note of this idea of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Luke, is, Luke loves to talk about the Holy Spirit. And we see that Simeon, who is righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was with him. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit came, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. And so, this is a man who is, uh, lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to just present a few ways where we see the power of the Holy Spirit moving through the life of Simeon and how it can be applicable to us as well. So, first of all, we see that the Spirit revealed something, some truth to him. The truth that was revealed to him is that he would see the Messiah. So the Holy Spirit revealed to him, we don't know how that came, whether it came through a dream or how, how exactly that revelation came to him, but he heard the word of God and he believed the word of God that he would see the Messiah. And he lived in the expectancy that he would truly see the Messiah. Now, it doesn't tell us how long um, he'd been believing this promise, but the text leaves us with the idea uh, that 
Some time has gone by since he received the word from God that he would see the Messiah and the time that he actually does see Messiah. So let's just say a certain amount of time has gone by. You can make it a year or five years or ten years or whatever. Um, But a certain amount of time has gone by and he was expectantly believing that the Messiah would come and yet every day he would go into the temple and there was no Messiah. Every day, every month, every year, he waited for God's promise to be fulfilled. And every week, and every day, and every month, and every year, he would go into the temple, and God's promise remained unfulfilled. But the cool thing about Simeon is that he never stopped believing God's word. Even when he was let down every day, every week, Every month, every year, he did not see God's word fulfilled, and yet he never stopped believing that God's word was absolutely certain, because every day he would get up and he would expect to see the Lord's Messiah. See, spirit-filled life, first of all, enables us to know the truth. But here's the other thing about a spirit-filled life. A spirit-filled life is a life of endurance. It is an enduring life. It is one that actually believes God over the course of many days, many weeks, many months, and many years, even many decades. And it is the one that continues to believe God even when it appears that it doesn't seem that God is fulfilling His promises. I see many people begin their life with Christ with a lot of zeal and with a lot of excitement they hear the promises of God they hear about forgiveness they hear about grace they hear about all of these things that God um, has done for them in their lives I'm glad that it's good to have people with a lot of zeal and a lot of excitement about the glorious things of God you want to know what excites me? The person who's been the same for 20, 30, 40 years and continuing to move along and continuing to be faithful to the, to the word of God, continuing to believe the promises of God, maybe not quite having that same level of zeal or that same level of, of outward excitement, but they have a steadfast belief that God's word will never fail. And they've been through it. They've, they've been through disappointment. They've been through trial. They've been through heartache. They've been through trying times. They've heard God and then they've been let down by God's people and they continue to believe God because they put no faith in God's people they put their faith in God himself and they come to church and sometimes church is good and sometimes it's not sometimes the the pastor's on and sometimes he wanders off into all sorts of realms unknown you can relate And, and sometimes everything works and sometimes it doesn't but their faith is not based upon whether or not they have some super powered preacher but does, they, does he share the word of God and, and they've been through challenging issues but here's the other thing maybe they've been through perhaps they've not only been faithful through the challenging issues but they've also been faithful through the times of comfort and ease I would guess that many times 
when we are in difficult places, we lean closely upon the Lord. I hear many people come to me, man, when I went through that illness, when I went through that crisis, when I went through that difficulty, man, the Lord was so close. I just drew near to Him. And I'm glad you did. That's the right place to go. My fear, however, is when we come out the other side and we experience the comforts of Christ and the prosperity and the well-being that comes with being in Christ, that oftentimes then we forget the Lord who brought us through all of those difficult times. I don't know how many times we've seen people come up here and they're homeless and they're broke and we work and we, we get them jobs and we get them places to stay. We've even gotten people's houses. And more often than not, in the comfort and the ease is when they begin to compromise God's truth. Not in the trial and the difficulty. When they're living out in the woods, they draw near to the Lord. But when they get the job and everything starts going pretty good, all of a sudden... They begin to fade. Simeon was a man who had been through it all. He knew what it was to go through difficult times, to expect the Lord's Messiah to be in the temple, and he wasn't there. And he continued to believe God. We put a lot of weight oftentimes in celebrity ministers, celebrity pastors. I'm glad we have many of them. There are great great Bible teachers who have an ability to share God's word to large groups of people and I praise God for them. Praise God for the spiritual giants but here's who I really who I also do not neglect to praise God for. I praise God greatly for the guy who gets up every day and he teaches his family God's word. And he goes to work and he works hard. Maybe he works in an assembly line. Maybe he works in a factory. Maybe he's hanging drywall or doing roofing. Maybe he's working in an office and he comes home and he continues to honor and love his wife, teach his children. He comes to a small group fellowship, sings on the, in the choir and does whatever. He serves the Lord. He serves his family. And he does it year after year after year. We need more of them. We don't necessarily need more celebrity Christians. We need men and women who get up every day, love their family, teach them the word of God, go to work, come home, share, be God's example in their work. You know, we just had the Olympics, and I I thought it was really interesting how so many people were saying, oh, this gold medal winner is a Christian. Praise God, I'm glad they are Christians. My Mormon friends are saying, praise God, this gold medal winner was a Mormon. <laughs> or a Buddhist, or a, or a Muslim. As though because somebody wins a gold medal or has some sort of great athletic ability and, and, and wins a, a great prize, as though that somehow validates our Christianity. And it doesn't. I'm glad they're Christians. I praise God they're Christians. I pray that everybody in Rio heard the word of God. I pray that people repented and came to Christ during that event. 
I really praise God for men and women who will never get a gold medal, never get an endorsement deal, never be proclaimed on the internet as somebody, as somebody. But every day you get up and you teach your family God's gracious word and you go to work and you share the gospel and you represent Christ well and you come home and you love your family, you love your wife, you love your husband, you love your kids and you ground yourself in God's word and you share the gospel and you serve in ministry and man, we just need more people like that. This was Simeon. Every day, got up and believed the promises of God. We need Simeons who just get up and believe that God is faithful, even when they don't see it. Simeon had many opportunities to be disappointed. Believing God's word and not seeing it come to pass every day and yet he continued to believe God here's the other thing about Simeon walking in the power of the Holy Spirit is that his eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit and when he came into the came in the spirit into the temple and the parents brought the child Jesus to him and so he he recognized that this individual this child was the Messiah that's an amazing thing how did he know that Jesus was the Messiah I know, if we look at the pictures, Jesus had a halo, so probably he figured that. The guy with the the halo, you know, that must be the Messiah. But we don't even know that he was looking for a child. How do we know he wasn't looking for some, just waiting for somebody to show up and proclaim in the temple, I'm the Messiah. But somehow, he recognized this 40-day-year-old, or this 40-day infant as being the consolation of Israel, as being the one who would bring salvation to Jew and Gentile. Because he came in the power of the Spirit. You've got to figure, many children, he had to see numerous children over the course of time being brought into the temple to be dedicated and to undergo this, this rite of purification. And Simeon was able to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Now here's the other interesting thing. From my understanding of what's going on in the temple during these days, the temple was a fairly busy place. You had all sorts of worshipers coming in, offering sacrifices. I'm sure you had other parents uh, bringing children in to be dedicated and also for the rite of purification. You have merchants in there. You have religious leaders coming and going, Sadducees and Pharisees. You even had people taking shortcuts across the temple because it was easier to cut across the temple than to go around it. And so people used it even as a shortcut just to get from one place to another. And so you have all of this activity going on and nobody... Unders recognizes that Jesus is Messiah except Simeon. More likely than not, many people walked right by Joseph and Mary holding this little baby. Oh, cute kid. Off they go. Religious leaders, Sadducees, Pharisees. Oh, cute kid. Got your purification taken care of? Good, you're good to go. See you next festival time. See you at the Passover. Simeon, the power of the Holy Spirit, has his eyes open. He says, that's no mere child. That's the Messiah. That's the one who came to save us for our sins. And he boldly goes and takes the child into his arms 
and begins to prophesy. I mean, how many people have you shared the gospel? How many people have you shared the gospel with, and they're just oblivious to the truth of Christ? But it's the Spirit who opens our eyes. It's the Spirit who illuminates us so that we can understand the Word of God. Paul tells us that the Word of God is foolishness to those who are perishing, and that it is imperative that the Holy Spirit open our eyes to understand the things of God, because we cannot understand them, because the carnal man cannot understand the things of God. And there were a lot of carnal people wandering around the temple that day who saw the word of God and did not recognize him. Simeon saw the exact same child and said, that's him. I had the gospel preached to me many, many times before I became a Christian. I heard the Bible all many times. And it never meant anything. And then one day I heard it, and it wasn't even an evangelistic message. It was just I heard, basically I heard the Sermon on the Mount being read. And I said, that's it. That's God's Word. There's no doubt about it in my mind. That is the Word of God. And I went home, and I went into my room, and I said, well, you're God, and I'm not, so here I am. How did that happen? Was it because it was a convincing speech or was it because somebody gave me a great reason to believe? Or No, it was just God's word and the Holy Spirit illumined my eyes so that I could see that it was truly God's word and that Christ came to die for my sins and save me from my own wickedness and make me his own child. That's, I, I don't know how that happened. There was no argument. There was no reasoning. There was no um, rationale. It was just God's word doing what God's word does. And the Holy Spirit opening the eyes of a blind man. I don't even know if I was a blind man, blind punk kid. And so Simeon comes in in the power of the Holy Spirit. He sees this child and he takes him into his arms and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant, servant depart in peace according to your word. I love that phrase. Christ was all he needed. I've seen Christ, now I'm good to go. You can take me now. I haven't seen a miracle. Don't need to see him do a miracle. Haven't seen him raised from the dead. Don't even need to see that. Don't need to see anything. All I know is I've seen Jesus and therefore I'm good. You can take me now. So many of us are waiting for some great big thing. Then I'll be happy once I get some success or get my family taken care of. Is Jesus enough for us? For Simeon, Jesus was all he needed. He also recognized that Jesus was salvation for all. My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. I like that. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Who are the all peoples? A light for the Gentile and the glory for your people Israel. So two groups of people are included in the salvation. Gentiles and Jews. Basically everybody um, is included in this. A light for the Gentiles. The Gentiles were sitting in darkness and God shone a great light to them and for glory for your people Israel. And then he goes on and he says, Now this Jesus, he is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel. It's an interesting thing to say to these young parents. Your child... It's going to be great. But he's also going to be for the rise and fall of many. 
That is, he will not only save people, but he will also be a rock of stumbling and a stone of offense, and people will stumble over him. The point of the matter is this. Jesus offers no neutrality. One is either for him or against him. One is either for him or we stumble over him. We are either established in him or we stumble over him. But there is no neutrality in Jesus. And I think that that our world and our society is getting more and more to a place where neutrality about the things of God um, will not be permitted by our culture and our society anymore. I read an article this last week and I tried to find it this morning (coughs) regarding the LGBT community and their agenda towards religious freedom and this individual who was writing this is pretty well known, spoke in a lot of churches was part of the LGBT community and said basically you've been able to hide You've been able to be fairly neutral. You've been able to make basically, you know, just kind of get away and say a few platitudes, say we we love people and we love everybody. That day's going to end. And you will, you will adhere to our agenda. being framed as a civil rights issue and I'm, the only reason I bring this, this issue up isn't because somehow this is worse but this is the issue of our day that's all, all right? if it were another time and another place I'd bring up another um, aspect of religious life but this is the issue of our day it is the one that is more likely than not going to challenge religious freedom and the days of neutrality are over we will stand for Christ or we won't We will stand for biblical truth or we won't. And already many people are abandoning biblical truth for the sake of relevance and for the sake of contextualization. And we are abandoning biblical truth. And that's what's going to happen. Either we're going to abandon biblical truth or we're going to stand for it. But let me tell you, there is no neutrality. Those days are ending. This is exactly what Simeon says. He's going to be for the rise and fall of many. You will either be established in him or you will trip over him. But there will be no neutral ground. And he will be a sign to be opposed. He will provoke hostility. You ever shared with somebody or talked to somebody or told somebody you're a believer that you go to church and then there's just hostility. Just outright hostility. I want you to know Jesus brings hostility. And then he speaks very personally to Joseph and Mary. Specifically to Mary. And your soul will be pierced been a number of different ideas of what's going on here. Most, most likely it has to do with her dealing with the crucifixion of her son. Seeing him pierced with a spear 
his hands and his feet pierced and his brow pierced with thorns and your soul will be pierced but notice what it says to the end that people's hearts will be revealed this is what Jesus does he reveals people's hearts and so this is Simeon's prophecy or Simeon's song that he believed that Christ was all he needed he could go now. He was done with his life. He'd reached the end of his life because he's seen Christ Messiah. That Jesus would be a non-neutral individual. He will be for the rise and fall of many. He will be opposed. And, he will, and the reason he'll be opposed is because he will reveal people's hearts. And now Simeon leaves the scene and we hear nothing else about him. But we enter, enter into another Prophecy. This is by a woman named Anna. And again, this is the second witness regarding the person of Christ. So again, by two or three witnesses, a thing is established. And now we have the second witness coming in. And she calls him the redemption of Jerusalem. It's very similar to the consolation of Israel. She's identified as a prophetess. And here's what she does. She has basically spent her life fasting and praying that's what she's done spent her life fasting and praying many of us might consider that a wasted life really that's all you did you didn't accomplish anything you just fasted and prayed you just ministered that's all this is a woman who's aged 84 and she lived with single minded devotion to the things of God and how did she live in single minded devotion to the things of God first of all she worshipped and she worshipped through fasting and prayer we might conclude that these are two of the most important areas of service. Oftentimes when we talk about, well, I'm going to serve God, means I'm going to go and do something. Mm, that's good. We need to do things. I mean, we need to feed the hungry and we need to you know, clothe the poor and all of these things. We need to do those things. I fear, though, too oftentimes we get real busy feeding the hungry and housing the homeless and we spend too little time fasting and praying. And probably the most important thing we can do as a body is to fast and pray. Not only individually, but also corporately. And by the way, October's coming up, right? So if you've been here more than a year, what's October? October fast, that's right. If you haven't been here a year, you don't know that yet. But in October, we'll spend the month in a, in a time of fasting and prayer. And so we just set that month aside as a time for fasting. I'll explain what, that, what we do during that time, and we would ask you to participate in it because many of us don't have the spiritual discipline of doing regular fast throughout the course of our lives. So we at least set a month aside where you can really focus on fasting and praying. But this is a woman who dedicated her life to fasting and praying. the single-minded devotion to the things of God. But not only did she fast and pray, she bore witness. That is, she proclaimed the truth of the Messiah. She also recognized the child, probably because she was fasting and praying. But she also recognized the child. And in her recognition, Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks and to speak of him to all who are awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. 
And so not only does she fast and pray, but she bears witness. She proclaims the truth about the Messiah. She recognizes him. And then everybody else who is looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, she begins to proclaim. So there she is in the temple area. She sees the child and she begins to testify that this is the Messiah. That this is the one who has come to save us from our sins. And so we have this incredible example of a life not wasted in the woman, Anna, who for 80, some, for many, many years, just spent her time fasting and praying, waiting for God to bring about his purposes. So oftentimes we spend our lives trying to fulfill some purpose to succeed in something. But probably the life that is most valuable and also the life that is most joyous is the one in full commitment to the things of God. If you haven't read um, the book Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper, it's just a thin little book, fairly simple reading. You should read it. It's a worthy read. On the back cover is kind of the, the core of the kind of the thesis, if you will, where he says, talks about a couple who retire and they seem to retire well. They bought a, a motor home and they go down south and they live on the, near the beach and they spend their lives and they collect seashells and they live a, a life of nice retirement. What are they going to do on the day when they stand before the Lord? Are they going to say, Look, Lord, my nice seashells? It's a life wasted. We would say that's a life fulfilled. See, they lived a great and nice retirement. They were able to live a life of leisure, do the things they wanted, but in the economy of God, it's a wasted life. In the economy of God, Anna's life was a life well invested. It was in a sold-out commitment to the glory and purposes of Christ. Matthew Henry, who many of you know by his his commentary of the Bible, but also uh, the man of known for prayer. On his deathbed, he said to a friend, he said this, You have been used to take notice of the saying of, sayings of dying men. This is mine. That a life spent in the service of God and communion with Him is the most pleasant life that anyone can live in this world. Anna lived her life in full service and communion with him her life was not a wasted life it was the most pleasant that anybody could ever live I'll conclude with this Jesus died for you Amen but more than that Jesus also lived for you so that you might possess the righteousness of Christ that is you are now your sin has been imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to you you are no longer a, a sinner but you are one who has the righteousness of Christ that is if you are a follower of Christ if you have called upon the name of the Lord and said yes Lord I will follow you you are the righteousness of Christ also second the spirit filled life is a life of endurance this life of endurance may conflict with the things of the world but it is the life that we need to live if you are new in the Lord, maybe not having been a believer very long, I would exhort you to, to endure 
if you are facing challenges and difficulties in your life, maybe an illness or the loss of a job or something that is fairly difficult or even catastrophic, do not abandon the Lord now. Now is the time to cling to Him. Likewise, if you've finally gotten to a place where some of the battles are behind you and you've come to a place of ease and a place of comfort, perhaps your finances are, are getting kind of settled in and you're doing fairly well, don't stop. This is not the time to ease up. Continue to endure in the gospel of Christ. Do not let trial and do not let comfort be a cause of abandoning or compromising the spirit-filled life. Keep enduring in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, a life that is committed to worship is not a life wasted. It is a life fulfilled. We will never be as joyful. We will never be as satisfied. And we will never be as fulfilled as when we give our lives to communion with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand and let's pray.